welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. This is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. We provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon. So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. All right, welcome to the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. My name is Adam Sturgeon, and today we have a special guest. It's uh, Dr. Ashley Massimino. She is a uh, psychologist, and she works with first responders, uh, mainly law enforcement, military, and um, she works with other various uh, first responders as well, I believe. But um, she's been doing this for 14 years, and I was able to go on her podcast, and now she's returning the favor. So thank you for joining us, Ashley, and the mysterious Ali in the background. Yes, we are both here. Thank you. Good morning or afternoon or whatever time it is in California these days. Good morning. We don't know what time it is. We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> now that everything is settled down, are you guys uh, comfortable, relaxed? Are we good to go? It's been a rough morning altogether. Uh, our power went out. I think we blew a circuit in one room and we couldn't fix it. So we had to relocate to another room. So thank you for being patient. Yeah, anytime. So are you, are, you, are you guys handy? Are you able to like fix that later on and fix that circuit? I don't know. We might need to ask you for some help. The box, nothing was moved, like the circuit box. So I don't I don't know what happened, but they did a lot of renovations. This is an old house. So I may, I have a feeling we just may have. I don't mess it. around with electric, electricity stuff. I don't know about that. I kind of, uh, I was trying to change a, a light switch the other day and I left the electricity on and it kind of pops. So <laughs> you don't want to trust me with electricity. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, it's a problem we'll have to fix later. Right now, all the plugs in one room don't work. So That's funny. Well, hopefully you get that it's easy fix. Well, uh, as you know, this podcast is all about first responders um, with my background in uh, policing and then those who support first responders and police in general. And since you work in that realm, I really wanted to have you on and talk about your story and get like the story behind what you're all about I know right now we're you're trying to bring attention to therapy and make it normalized in not only the the world in general but in the first responder world. So, um, sure. yeah, well, let's uh, start at the beginning. I want to know what brought you to the idea. Okay, so what what brought you to psychol to become a psychologist? Like, what what brought you into that idea? Like, that's what you want to do in life. I think it's one of those things where I just fell into it. Um, like it was a path that I was supposed to go down, but I can't say that I intentionally chose it or knew even what I was doing when I was going down that path originally. So, um, you know, as an undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think I did, you know, two or three years of general ed classes and still didn't know. And, you know, I was working and I was working in the field. Um, so I was getting some experience and some training, but um, I didn't know. I didn't know. So things just kind of fell in place in front of me and I continued applying. I applied to grad school. Um, I just happened to land at a really great grad school and um, grad school where I felt like I was really well-trained and mentored and shaped um, and pushed to grow. We were, we were forced to go to therapy. It was one of the requirements. So All right. um, we had to do 52 weeks of a minimum of 52 weeks of individual therapy. And then, uh, either like couples therapy or group therapy or some other type of like spiritual direction where you meet with like a spiritual mentor. I think that was like 20 weeks. Um, and then 
that was most of our first time experience going to therapy. So most of us ended up staying in therapy just because it was such a formative period for us. Um, I almost akin it to like going to boot camp. You get broken down yeah, and then you get rebuilt. And uh, that was what was happening in grad school for us. So I think I was in therapy for five, six years at really? least. And, and most of us were. Mm-hmm. So is that what, is that what guided you towards like you wanted to be a therapist or a psychologist, the actual going to therapy or is it prior to taking that step? I think as in my, my own family system, I'm the oldest and um, there was a lot of uh, conflict and chaos growing up. And so I kind of became paternalized pretty early. So I became like the surrogate parent for my siblings and for myself. Um, And so I think just being that type of personality naturally kind of, you know, leads you into like a helping profession where you already know how to do this. You're good at doing this. You've been doing it. It's not healthy that you've been doing it, but I was doing it and I knew how to do it. So going into a helping field, I think felt natural for me um, and easy. And actually I realized recently, and maybe you can remind me Ellie where I realized this, but um, that was our last podcast that uh, prison itself is very chaotic and uh, there's a lot of stress in that environment. And that was the same environment I grew up in. It was very chaotic, very stressful. And so I know how to navigate that kind of environment, but now I'm realizing, is it healthy for me to stay in that type of environment? You said it is healthy for you to stay? No, I, I'm questioning myself. Oh, got it. Is it healthy for me to keep working in that type of environment, knowing that it's the same type of environment as a child, you know, that I experienced. So, and we talked about this before. So you, you work in a prison right now. Mm-hmm. How long have you been working in a prison? Since about 2009. So often oh, wow. about 13 years. Would you, I've always thought this, would you feel like working in a prison is very similar to doing time in prison in a way? I feel like that. I feel like I've, I've worked in a, in a jail, not like a prison, but I've worked, Sometimes it feels like doing time is being in there. I think when things are slow um, or really hard, yeah, it feels like you're doing time. You're you're doing a lot of watching the clock and a lot of like negative mental rumination. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. yeah. There's like a count, a retirement countdown calendar. Most yeah. of us have in our heads like a parole date. <laughs> you're literally getting old. You're growing old with convicted felons. Yeah. And with and and inside of the walls, yeah, you're spending most of your time Mm -hmm. with convicted felons. If you think about it, and it's not like a normal job where you know you can just kind of casually go by Starbucks on your way in, or you leave and you can run an errand or go get lunch and then like come back and you know bring in whatever you need to be comfortable. Like you can't bring in anything that you need to be comfortable. Like even a fan from my office or you know, uh, a radio, everything you need permission for everything. And it takes sometimes years to get permission to get the most basic thing. So you go in and you're uncomfortable. You, you go in like you're camping, like, you know, you got your lunch bag or your backpack, you carry in everything that you're going to need for eight, 10, 12 hours. And, and honestly, a lot of us over prepare and pack more because there's been times that there's been an attempted escape or an escape. And then the whole place locks down and you're not leaving. And now you're just stuck. <laughs> What's the longest you've been stuck? Um, 
there was one escape and I think they finally opened the gates for staff at like midnight. So, and I think I was supposed to leave at 10 that night. So I ended up staying an extra two hours, but it felt like forever. Yeah. Um, How about you, Ollie? As long as you've been stuck at work. I mean, not, not for, you know, nothing related to an escape, but, um, yeah, eight, an extra eight hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. On top of 12 or 10? On top of eight. So oh, 16, eight hours. Eight. 16 mm-hmm. hours. And depending on where you're working, you're probably staying maybe, you know, nine hours, not eight. Mm-hmm. So. Do they search you every time you go in? Do they search you? Your anal everybody, <laughs> everybody gets, no, they're not checking. No. Everybody gets checked uh, on the way in. And they the check out. our bags. Yeah. They check our ID. When we leave, they check our trunks. Things like that, or at least they're supposed to. That's probably a protocol that they uh, should abide by, all right? Because every once in a while you hear a story about someone. I mean, recently, I think I've seen recently like someone like helping like a convict. Yeah, that thing on Vicky White. Yeah, yeah. Was that the one I saw? Maybe the one on the news. Yeah, the one that dominated the news throughout the spring. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you make it that far in that process. Uh, yeah. Do you feel, I'm curious, because I know like as far as law, they talk about law enforcement, we get jaded after a certain amount of time just being around like the bad element in society because you're always getting called to calls as far in the field. But I know, and I'm sure it's even tenfold with, uh, in like you said, doing time with convicted felons as a, as a, I don't know, prison guard. I'm not exactly sure what the, position that Ollie has, but um, for you as a psychologist in the prison, do you start, do you have to start having these feelings of like jadedness towards society? Oh yeah. Uh, it's a very negative place to work just overall. When you think about it, um, I have to take breaks. Sometimes I have to take a leave of absence and just not be there for a while because uh, it's, there's just so many negative interactions Uh, not just with inmates, but it's hard for all staff, I think, to deal with it. So I think staff becomes one of the hardest things to deal with at one point. You know, everyone's trying to cope with being there. Some people are working too much overtime. Some people are getting held. You got staff getting assaulted. Um, You know, you're not comfortable and it's hot. It's summer and uh, everyone's kind of at each other. So it's, it's hard to deal with. I mean, as a, as a psychologist, I'm, I'm dealing with clients who may be threatening me or exposing themselves to me uh, sexually or calling me names or yelling. And when you think about any sort of therapist in any type of environment, that's usually not the normal environment for a therapist. And if you know anything about our personalities, like we're very sensitive anyways, we have to be or else we're going to be bad at our jobs. So to be able to tolerate that kind of environment, you have to really, um, like almost put up a, a front or a false self or a shield just to make it through each day. And then it, and then it builds up. It's cumulative. So it's difficult. How does that affect you when you're with clients who aren't from like aren't prisoners? Oh, it's a relief. I mean, this is why I have my, my practice on the side. Um, it feels so nice to have uh, normal, you know, some tax paying citizens, uh, p- happy to pay my full fee for a session. They're grateful. Uh, they're making progress. 
you know, they don't abuse me in any way. So, uh, yeah, it feels good. It feels good to work with like normal people, quote unquote. I mean, it does feel good at times to, um, work with inmates who are properly motivated and actually do want to rehabilitate, but that's very few and far between. So it's hard to get those positive moments as a therapist in prison. It's very rare. So I, I need that to keep going. And so that's why I have my practice. So I know we're going back and forth here. So how did you decide, did you, did you work with law enforcement first before you entered the prison or did you start that for like, what's, what side happened first? That's a good question. Um, so in my graduate school, um, the army heavily recruited, uh, officers out of my school to go into the army as army psychologists, excuse me. And, uh, a lot of my friends, um, signed up. And so, you know, they got part of their tuition paid for and they got their internship, they got deployed and they started working almost right away. Um, and I, that was something I really wanted to do. And I felt like it was really a noble choice to make to, to go do that. Um, and because I had already had a son at that point who was pretty young, I couldn't, I wasn't willing to leave him, you know, to leave for a year or two years. And he was so small. So that was kind of always my dream to do it. And I kind of vicariously lived through my, my cohort that did do it. Um, but instead I did have other opportunities. You know, I worked in, um, you know, juvenile court, I worked in the foster system. I worked in the state hospitals, um, I tried to pick training opportunities that would give me kind of a wide variety of work with different types of first responders. And so by the time I, you know, started working in prison, I, I feel like I was already had like a good foundation. Um, but what I saw when I came to prison, I think this was the second part that influenced me was um, I started noticing how many correctional officers were not doing well um, and were not getting what they needed to become better. And, um, there were plenty of times I had this uh, group I ran at one prison. It was a lifers group and they were all pretty motivated. They had parole dates coming up and they had been incarcerated for 20, 25 years and they were older. So, you know, they were a little more reflective and yeah. willing to talk about stuff. When you said lifers, yeah. I wasn't sure if you're talking about the prisoners or the, or the correctional officers, but <laughs> continue. Yeah. And, uh, and every time we would go to group, uh, and a lot of them worked in, in the kitchen, which is usually in this vocational area that's in the back of the prison. So they'd have to go through several security checkpoints and get searched to even come up to come to my group. And I told them, like, look, I don't want you coming to group smelling like onions and everything else that goes along with being in a kitchen all morning. So go back, take a shower, get dressed in normal clothes, and then come to group because nobody wants to smell it. And so, you know, they would do that and then they would get um, harassed. I'll say harassed and I'll explain in a minute. Coming through those security checkpoints, like there would be extra searching and officers saying things to them like, like, oh, you're going to go to the hug a thug group and, um, oh, you're putting on cologne for Dr. Massimino. Oh, like what's she doing in there with you guys, you know? So it was a lot of that stuff going on. So by the time they got to group, they were so agitated that it took us the entire two, three hours just to get rid of that, to focus on what we were there for. So I've, I went to those areas and I started talking to those officers and I realized um, it wasn't about the inmates. Like they really needed some help. Uh, one of them was suicidal. Um, another one was like 
diabetic and about to lose a limb. The other one was an alcoholic and they were so hungry. Like I just started talking to them and they started trusting me. And then the harassment stopped of the inmates. And then I realized like these guys are really hurting and they need some help. So that was another formative experience. And then we had several suicides at that institution shortly after. And so that's when I started realizing like, okay, I can, I can also help the good guys and I want to. Yeah. And that's when my practice started. So when you first had this idea of, I'm going to go address these uh, correctional officers and because they're harassing the inmates on the way to not harass, you know, giving them a hard time on the way to therapy. What was your mindset? Like when you're, I'm going to go address these, the correctional officers to tell to ask them to stop or tell them to stop or how was, how was your approach before you found out that they were having, like they are having. Yeah. It, it wasn't like, I'm going to go check these guys. It was just like, all right, I'm going to go see what's up. Cause I don't understand what's happening here. And I didn't know who they were. And I would just hear about it through the people coming to my group. So um, yeah, I just went to go talk to them. I just introduced myself and told them what we were doing in group and just got to know them slowly. I just go visit them once a week and chat for a little bit. So, you know, just like the, let's grab a cup. It was just like, Hey, let's just, you know, let's shoot the shit for a minute and yeah, see what's going on. So they receptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did any, um, any officers reach out as far as like, Hey, not for, not for that group specifically, but for like for more advice or help from you. Yeah. Um, that's when I, I also got started doing like um, department trainings. And so I started teaching and that's how I started meeting more people. Um, people would come up to me privately, you know, if they saw me and, and talk and share um, or they'd tell me about someone else they were concerned about. And we didn't have a policy at that point, really like what to do if someone was really struggling, like how to go about it at work. And so I just did my best to try to address you know, the issues, a lot of times people didn't want me to intervene. They just wanted to share. Yeah. And maybe get some feedback from me about what to do. So. I was curious, like when you're from the professional line to the, to like coworker or a friendship line, when you're, you're, you're a therapist or psychologist inside the prison and you, you go talk to somebody, whether it's inside or outside the prison, but you talk to somebody who may be associated with you and they start kind of talking to you in a way where like, almost like you're using you as a therapist at what point do you kind of like, okay, yeah, we were friends or we're talking this way, but I either can't treat you or this is therapy or when do you tell them or like, Hey, this needs to be a therapy session. You need to actually like I, this, I need to charge for this. This is not just, we're not just at this (laughs) friendship point. I guess that's a good question. It's kind of like, uh, like what's the difference between being a peer support member and, you know, being a therapist and there's probably a lot of overlap in some ways. Um, I feel like if it's at work and someone wants to talk and just needs a little bit of time, I don't, I don't mind just talking as coworkers and, and listening and, you know, trying to give them what they need. But if it's outside of work, I, you know, I feel like that's a different story. So I might, I might give a little bit of time to try to help triage or assess what's going on. But at some point I do, you know, let them know, like, you know, I don't know if I should be the one treating you, probably not. And let me help you find some resources or find someone to work with. Um, Usually I'm like the bridge for most people. So they're not really like seeking you out as their therapist. They're kind of just, you're on the way to them finding a therapist. 
Yeah, either they don't know how to find one or like they don't know how to use their own insurance to find one or or they don't know even what to ask for. Mm -hmm. So before you decide you're going to be a therapist when you're in college, what was was else on the table? Hmm. I was thinking about um, uh, being like a teacher and also a coach. I thought that would have been fun. So I very, played basketball growing up, so all right. I coached a little bit in college, so I always enjoyed coaching. I think that's very similar to being a therapist. Yeah, it's um, a it's got the same like mindset, right? Taking care mm-hmm. of people. Um, once I got into uh, law enforcement more, I realized I probably could have been like a really good detective, and I think I would have enjoyed that. Although I think this is probably a little bit more to my true to my nature what I'm doing now. But there's been times stuff has happened and I was determined to get to the bottom of it. And I did. So, you know, I always tell the inmates, like, you know, when I run groups, especially it, you know, when you run any group, whether it's with normal clients or inmates, you can't control the confidentiality in the group, right? Someone could leave the group and go talk. And that's one of my biggest rules and pet peeves. Like if you violate the group rules and you talk about this group with anyone else, and I tell everyone, everyone has one person that they want to go tell everything to. And I said, you can't tell that one person anything about this group. That's just the rule. And if you do, I'm going to kick you out of group and I'm going to find out who did it. And you would think like, that's really hard. They're not going to tell staff what's going on, but I always find out always. And so I forget what they called me in this one group called me like the hammer or something. Cause I found out and I just like swiftly kicked those guys out of group. So <laughs> So they were telling other inmates about the group and then you somehow you were able to detectively figure out who was telling, I found out and then I, and then I started digging and I found out who it was. Has there ever been, I mean, obviously not specific. So has there ever been something that an inmate has told you where you're like, why you really wish I could report this, but I can't. Yeah. The laws, not the laws. The culture has changed a little bit in prison, so they're offering the um, medication-assisted treatment now, like the Suboxone treatment in prison for people that are struggling with substance abuse. And part of that process is um, the doctors that run those programs, uh, you know, take lab work and drug test uh, those inmates regularly, as as they would do anyone that was in that type of a program. And um, not only do they test them for illegal drugs, they test them for prescription drugs too. And so I see the lab results, you know, in their medical record. And um, that's not something that's supposed to be used against them in a disciplinary way because they're actively involved in trying to get sober. Right. Um, but they, they'll relapse and they'll do things they shouldn't do. They'll use someone else's Suboxone. Um, so that kind of stuff, that's like a gray line where, I'm not supposed to cross that line into a disciplinary way, but sometimes disciplinary methods help with sobriety. You know, if you keep getting in trouble every time you use, then there might be a little more motivation to stop using. Right. So that's one example. And you're allowed to report that or not? No. In the past, in the past we could request drug testing or we okay. could request, you know, your analysis if we thought they were using and then they would get written up. But if they're in this program, it's a little bit different now. But no one's ever said anything besides like seeing a result, but no one's ever like, has anyone ever told you something in prison that you're like, 
oh shit, I wish I could. This needs to be like you can't do anything about it. It's done or did done or whatever hasn't happened. Maybe I don't know. I don't know what what you're allowed to report. Not allowed to report at that point. No, if it's something that I ever felt like I needed to report, I would. Um, I mean, there's things like, uh, you know, if if I become aware that inmates told me they have a weapon, um, I, I'll never sit on that. I'll let staff know and they'll start searching for it. Um, you know, stuff like if we are, think they might escape or there's a plan to escape or uh, they're suicidal or, or, I mean, there's almost nothing that I, I wouldn't report. Safety and security is always number one in prison. So um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit on information like that. And the inmates know that like they can't just tell you it just anything like they have to be. Yeah, they know, uh, they know, they know the rules probably better than we do. Yeah. And I'm sure they, they know do. what we have to report and what we don't. So I feel like if an inmate tells me something like that, uh, you already know, like you're, you're wanting me to report it is what I'm assuming. All right. So uh, let's go back to earlier. I mean, you mentioned that you have a child. Mm-hmm. You, I don't know if you want, want to talk about that and uh, kind of like, I don't know, where you, you said you had a child and it was when you first started kind of wanting to go out and like maybe even go out into the military section, but you couldn't. Yeah. So how was that like going through the training and also being a mother? Yeah, it was really hard. Uh, you know, he was young. Actually, I had him when I was in grad school. Um, so it was easier when I was in school because I, I was busy, but I was able to be home more, you know, I wasn't like at a job where I had to be there for 10, 12 hours. So, um, once I started working, it was very difficult to do that. You know, there's a lot of tension for mothers. It was hard to have the feeling of like, why am I spending 10 hours with, uh, you know, incarcerated individuals. And then I'm feel like I'm neglecting my own child for 10 hours. So it doesn't feel very good yeah. to do that, but there's always like the long-term goal of, you know, I have to do this to get where I need to be to provide for all of us. So, um, yeah, that was difficult. Uh, other than that element, I don't think it's any different than any other working mother. Um, there's always the balance of how are you going to do both? And I think the other thing that might've impacted me is, uh, working in prison, you kind of come home and you can't turn that switch off. Yeah. You know, so you start becoming more of uh, like barking instructions at people when you come home and uh, having like a, a hair trigger and just kind of going off a little more easily on people uh, and not having the patience that you need to have as a parent. So that was probably the other aspect that impacted me. So I was wondering that because uh, as far as like in law enforcement, you said like you have this trigger when you go kind of get home, like you've been holding it in, dealing with all this stuff every day, but then you have to like, obviously now you have to raise a child but also as a therapist, I mean, you kind of have all these tools in your tool bag that you're using consistently with people. And I mean, I, my kids have gone to therapy. So like, I know it feels like, Oh, the therapist knows how to, they're probably a great mother, but I don't know how you feel as a mom. Like, are you, do you feel like those tools are kind of thrown to the wind? Cause you're like, why is, or is your kid like perfect? You know what I mean? I, don't know, I always feel, I feel like you just come on. Oh yeah. My kid is like, he d- does all the, th- I do all the things and they do all the things perfectly. I wish. Yeah. No, no, I wish. Um, I think if, I mean, if I, he's grown now, he's, he's in college, but if I had to go back and redo, I think the only thing I would have redone differently is I probably would have tried to work less and be away from home less and been home more to be honest. Um, in terms of parenting, I think maybe 
when you're a therapist, you are always sort of a, try to be attuned to your child and listen and explain. And, and so I think that lends to, you know, a little bit of entitlement in children because then they're expecting that and used to it and they're not used to dealing with like maybe more of the hardships. And so uh, I almost wish, uh, you know, he would have experienced a little bit more of um, not getting what he needed all the time. Even if it was just emotionally, I think maybe I was like too good of a parent sometimes. (laughs) That's really interesting because I feel like that's that's caused some issues. That's that's funny because you're talking about like kids getting it too. It's too they're too soft on these days, right? Mm -hmm. And this was like you're saying your kids grown, so you know, fifteen twenty years ago, you're starting out. So I don't know. I feel like kids are really soft these days. Like we're always asking them how they feel and stuff. And before we grew up, it really wasn't like that. Yeah. Like maybe I should have taken him on some like trips to a third world country and, you know, made him do some hard labor occasionally and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's every, every parent needs to take their kid to a third world country. Yeah. Yeah. You need to go see what life is like somewhere else and realize, you know, what you have. Yeah, I agree. So I know Ali's not going to answer any questions he said, but how can I ask how I know I can ask this, but you might not answer. How do you guys uh, meet? How did we meet, Ollie? I plead the fifth. <laughs> uh, oh. I slid into his DMs. That's what happened. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, that's how we met. Actually, we met before then, but we didn't start dating then. We just knew each other. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to say? Um, earlier, you were talking about nobody wants to smell that, you know, when you were talking about the inmates going from the culinary jobs to your therapy sessions, uh, it made me remember this thing that you've been complaining about all fucking morning. <laughs> is this the backstory? Yes. Oh, see, I, was, I didn't know when the backstory was going to come in. So I, you know, what is it? What's the backstory? There's some, something about a can. Yeah. yeah I um, slept like shit last night. Show me and can. why, why did I sleep like shit? I'm going to show you. Can you see this? Peanut butter milk stout. So belching beaver belching. peanut butter milk stout. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's this one. This was the culprit from last night. And yeah. Then there's this lead dog peanut butter stout. Is it so all? Is all you have is peanut butter stouts? This was consumed last night by by Ali. Okay. We had okay. a nice evening last night with family, and he decides he's going to purchase this peanut butter milk stout. It's delicious if you like stout beer. Check like it out. Is it delicious? I'm going to say yes. All right. So we made ice cream floats or beer floats with this last night. And uh, I'll also mention he is lactose intolerant. Oh, fantastic. Okay. On top of that. So now we have ice cream and a milk-based beer that he's consuming that has peanut butter in it. And he goes to sleep because he had a little bit more to drink than I did. Right. He goes to sleep and I'm laying there and I always have a hard time going to sleep. This is normal. I'm awake. Sounds like my house. Keep going. I'm still awake. I'm like, all right, I need to watch some TV or something to relax. And out of nowhere, this wave of death just washes over my face. (laughs) Like, what the fuck was that? So I'm like, okay, his ass is exploding right now. So I'm like tucking the sheets around him. I'm like, no, this isn't happening tonight. I'm tucking around him and then I'm tucking around me. I'm like, all right, I'm good. Let me continue watching my show. It kept happening. So 
I laid there for three hours just being tortured by the smells coming out of his asshole while he's just sleeping soundly. And literally I would start to fall asleep and then a wave would wash over my face. And I'm thinking, how is this escaping the blankets when I've tucked them in so well? Yeah. Is there nowhere else you could have gone? You're stuck there. I contemplated switching rooms, but I only do that when I'm like really pissed. Yeah. And so you didn't want him to think you were mad. No, I wasn't mad. Well, I was sort of mad, but not, not at him. That's, so that's I, fantastic. I, yeah. I felt like shit this morning. I was like, Oh God, how am I going to do this interview? So <laughs> I gave you till noon. So you're <laughs> to recover. <laughs> That's so and then funny. he and then he actually suggested drinking this during this interview, and I thought, "Oh, is that what he was saying?" I didn't get that earlier. That's hilarious. Right now, so basically, she wants me to rehome the rest of this beer that we got. So, so the whole no, idea, like lactose him. intolerant, so you yes. are technically you can tolerate it to a point. What's, where's the intolerance? No, I can't tolerate what it does to his body. That's what. Oh, it comes okay. From. I told him, you can continue drinking this beer, but you're going to sleep in the other room that night if you do drink it. I shouldn't have to be the one to relocate. I like my bed, and I like sleeping in it. Oh, man. <sighs> well, my wife won't let me try it now after this episode. I'll have to keep her from Nor listening. Nor should you. There's no reason. He said no it was reason. delicious. I mean, you could take like a lactate or something, like something to help digest. He'll be belching from both ends. Oh, great. <laughs> I want him to crack it open right now. Mm. Okay. There all right. So, all right. So, you guys met in the DMs. Is what you're saying? We met before then. But I yes. don't know. I don't know what you'll tell me about this, about this mysterious man. I think he's a man. I don't even know who, what he is, honestly. <laughs> I, I assumed. I assumed. <laughs> I identify as a podcaster. Okay, there you go. All right, well, the two of you run the Staff Assistant Podcast. Yes. And then how, and how did that come about? Like, what did that, I know it started, I would say recently, but I don't know, when did that actually start? That's a good question. Okay. Yeah, I think it was early 2021. Um, it was May. We were invited on another podcast to talk and, uh, oh my God, I was so nervous and I had never talked about myself ever. And, um, I think I was a little drunk that episode just cause I was so nervous, not on belching beaver, this other stuff. And, um, when it was over, I thought that was kind of cool, even though it was scary. And so, um, and then I think a week or two after that, uh, a coworker of ours committed suicide And we had been toying with the idea of uh, doing something else. We couldn't figure out what that was. Um, Just to, I don't know, help our coworkers in some way still, but we weren't sure what the function or the method would be. So um, he kept telling me, you know, you, you can do this. You can, you can, you can have your own podcast. You'd be great. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that and I don't like doing it. And I think that's a terrible idea. And he just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And finally we're like, once our coworker uh, took his own life, I said, okay, let's, let's do this. And so that's. I didn't realize how similar our story was. That's crazy. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, for me, it wasn't someone that I even knew well, but it's just happened so many times over yeah. the years that it, it becomes cumulative at some point. It's like a collective grief that you feel yeah, because you understand uh, why it happens. And, you know, you feel the same way. Sometimes there's people that get investigated um, or go out on workers comp for some reason and are injured at work. And, um, you know, it, it's difficult. We have a really difficult job for people that uh, haven't been investigated or the subject of an investigation that by itself is stressful. Um, you know, being off of work and kind of feeling neglected or forgotten about by coworkers, that's really hard. And then not getting your needs met, you know, medically um, or in terms of mental health while you're out either with the workers' comp system is stressful. So there's just a lot of things that go on at work and on top of an already stressful environment. And um, I just thought, okay, well, we know what it's like to be, to be there. And so let's start talking about it. How has the podcast been received with uh, people you know or coworkers, people maybe you don't know in the in this world of first responders? Go for it. I think a lot of people have expressed appreciation. People have taken the time to listen. Um, they normally get something out of it, and just like the uh, the person being interviewed. Yeah, I think. Um, in our department specifically, I think a lot of staff feel uh, forgotten about and don't feel taken care of in any sense. And the focus has really shifted over the years, you know, to um, to really changing the way we take care of inmates. And so uh, with that comes the other side of the pendulum, which is staff aren't getting what they need. I'll give you one example. There's a new um, equine horse therapy program which is kind of cool that they've started at some institutions for inmates and it's to help with trauma and anxiety and it's a good thing. But as staff, you know, no one has access to that themselves. Like it's something they would have to go pay for themselves or it's not something that's covered by insurance. And so stuff like that occurs regularly where, you know, we teach, you know, the classes we teach for inmate suicide prevention are, four hours. And then the class we teach for staff suicide prevention is one hour. And so over time you develop this belief that you're not important and that you're not cared about. And so I think having this specific podcast, um, I think a lot of people in our department feel like this is for them and it is, it is for them. It's only for them. And, um, and my hope too is that this will be applicable to other departments, other agencies, other types of agencies where people will feel like this is someone that's on the inside that knows, you know, what it's like and cares right. and wants to develop a community of people that can help each other. Well, tangent real quick, the, that whole idea of like you're, the inmates getting something and the staff feeling, you know, like they don't get, they don't get the same opportunities. Um, is that true with the, uh, like education, because isn't it true like they inmates can get like basically get their degree while they're in jail or in prison, yeah. Yeah, but for free. Yeah, and isn't that's not available to the staff like that to be able to do that, right? One thing that is available to the staff based on the uh, classification, um, some classifications do give uh, educational incentive pay. Um, so that's important. Incentive Most pay time. after you've gotten you had after to go pay for your own d- degree, though. 
Right. Yeah. But it's as long as you have that job. Right. So kind of offsets it a little bit. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. thought that was, I always thought that was interesting. Like you could, you know, commit, commit a heinous crime and then I'll go get your education for free. They link it to recidivism. Yeah. Know, I understand. But it, it creates that feeling with yeah. staff. And, and I'll say this too. And I think um, Aaron Loman always reminds me of this is that uh, we are, we are not incarcerated and we have the ability to take care of ourselves in any way that we want. And we shouldn't rely on our departments to do that. We are independent, autonomous human beings that are free and we're able to take care of ourselves. But I think working in uh, law enforcement, it's kind of like a militaristic culture. And so you're so accustomed to taking directions and directives and following and obeying that you almost become institutionalized and you start feeling like you can't make choices on your own uh, or decisions on your own. You have to do what the department's telling you to do. Right. So if the department is only offering like one path. And for us, that one path is EAP. Go use EAP. Well, what's EAP? That, for us, employee assistance program, okay. it's like the, the free therapy if you need it. Um, but with our department, it's through a company called Magellan, which it would be different if it was like, oh, you get free therapy with the counseling team international. No, you get free therapy, six sessions with Magellan and Magellan sucks. Like there's almost no therapists that are in network with Magellan. You can't even find a therapist. And if you do, they may or may not be any good. And then you only get six sessions. So um, things like that, like people believe like this is my only path to therapy is going to EAP. They don't even realize like I have health insurance that I pay for. Right. I can use that to go to a therapist too, or I can go to the gym or I can go do other things that are healthier for me. I don't have to just do, you know, the one thing that the department is telling me to do. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like that's how it was for us. Like we just, we had counseling team, but that's, mm-hmm. that's where I went because that's what was offered. Mm-hmm. So, And I've heard they're good. So that would be a good outlet. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah, I had a good experience, but not everybody does. I think it's it's obviously like person to person. So, mm-hmm. so going back to the podcast, and I and all you mentioned this, like people that go on um, themselves feel like they get something out of it, and I can attest to that as well. Like being on your podcast, like I mean, I know even people listening to it, it's like they felt like they were in a ther- they can they're like listening to a therapy session, mm-hmm. and it very much was like kind of like a therapy session, and you run it. I think you do that way on purpose. So the idea of like normalizing therapy, but yeah. for people willing to go on and to be open about their past, I think it's, yeah, it's very therapeutic to go to be able to talk about stuff and like flush it out. And you do it in a very, I'd say distinct way where you don't, I don't, I mean, I didn't feel, I felt very at ease. I didn't feel uncomfortable or any, anything. And obviously when you've asked guests to come on, it's, they're whatever they're willing to discuss too. So sure. anyone that's listening that would even, you know, might want to go out on your podcast, it was really a great experience. So just so I wanted to reiterate that as yeah, well. I'm glad. Yeah. That's kind of our twofold goal is one for our guest to leave feeling like they've gotten something out of it um, beyond just sharing. And then two to really um, let the listeners in on like as a fly on the wall, you know, like what your first session would have looked like. Um, and to be able to listen to that and do it in a way that's comfortable for you and doesn't feel intrusive or yeah. you know, like we're exploiting your information in any way. 
So I know you put a disclaimer out there on your podcast that nobody that you're interviewing on the podcast are actually clients of yours. Mm-hmm. Has anyone after going on wanted to go to therapy, like using you? Has anyone asked you to do that? And are they allowed? And would you even allow that? No, there's been a few people that um, haven't come on that have wanted to be guests and I thought would be a good guest, but then at the same time they needed to find a therapist. And so they Uh, kind of asked me for both. I said, well, you have to choose which one do you want? Do you want to be my client or do you want to come on the podcast? Can't be both. Um, So that's happened. Um, There have been, you know, relationships forged uh, after doing episodes in different ways, sometimes business, sometimes not. And I've learned that I need to be very cautious with like the dual relationship factor, um, after recording. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a little more cautious now in terms of like, I want to, like, I want to network with people. I want to meet people. I want to, I want to build relationships, but I do have to be careful how I do that. Can you explain, explain that a little bit? What do you mean by that? What what way do you have to be careful? Like, um, in my field, uh, the concept of dual relationship is taken very seriously in terms of ethics. So, you know, if I have one type of relationship with you, like we've done some sort of podcast work together, what, you know, some sort of like professional networking, and then we transition into a different role. Like now I'm either, um, like working with you or for you, or you're working for me, or we're entering into a different type of business relationship. Um, or there's referrals being pushed around. And so when that starts happening, I just have to be mindful of making sure that we're communicating clearly that the expectations are kind of the same across the board. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. No. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely noticed that like different relationships you build, just doing this kind of work, you, it doesn't mean that I mean, who knows what's going to be outside of it. It's like, sometimes it's just, it's just the podcast and that's fine. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, even you have to lower, not lower your expectations, manage your expectations on, on other people's mm-hmm. expectations. I don't know. That's the best way to say it. And it's hard because just like in therapy, when I interview someone, I think um, there's a closeness that's developed. Like, even though it's recorded and everyone's listened to it, like you and I spoke for a few hours about your life, about a lot of personal things. So, you know, I feel this way and I'm assuming you do too, that there's sort of like this known factor. Like you feel like I know you, we know each other and you feel comfortable. And so that tends to like shift the quality of the relationship a little bit where maybe now, like you said, there's some different expectations. Like maybe there's a different sense of now that I expect something differently from you because I've really exposed myself to you or been vulnerable with you. So it's a quality that occurs in therapy too, that I have to be careful about that we talk about it. Um, and this is why therapy is so unusual because you're building a very personal, intimate relationship with someone that's professional and how do you keep it professional and personal at the same time? Yeah. Has any, I mean, you can maybe kind of alluded to this earlier, but has anyone crossed the line where you had to like, okay, this is going to end like this therapy session. This, we're not doing therapy anymore because this is turned into, I know that idea of like the, the person getting therapy has like almost like you said, like fallen in love or with their therapist or like treat them as, Oh, that's the object of my affection because I'm divulging all this information. Like they know me more than anybody, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Has it gone too far where you're like, no, this is done. Well, we, well, this it's going to be hard to explain because I think most people listening aren't therapists, but the therapists listening will understand. Um, 
there's something called erotic transference and countertransference, and it's something that's considered normal in therapy. So regardless of who your therapist is, if it's someone that's the same sex or opposite sex or your type or not your type, uh, if therapy is going well, um, the client is supposed to, we call it falling in love, but it's not falling in love in the normal sense. It's like you, you feel so close to this person that now, um, you're getting triggered in different ways by them, almost like they were a partner and you develop like very strong emotional connection to them. And so for most people, that's what it feels like. It feels like they've fallen in love. Um, even though that's, that's not what it is, it's something different. And so when that happens, uh, it's not my job to then cut off the relationship. That's actually more damaging. It's my job to just maintain boundaries, acknowledge their feelings help explain this is normal. It just means that we've established a good level of trust in the relationship. And then just to help them sort through those feelings and understand that they're normal, but the relationship will continue as it's been and will not become anything else. And usually the client works through those feelings and then they realize like, this is just a, a strong emotional attachment. It's not a romantic interest. It's interesting. How long would you allow, I'm going to say allow, but like how long would you entertain the fact that they're feeling this way before they've kind of got to a point, if they're, if they're expressing it, I'm assuming in most cases people probably aren't saying it out loud. They might just feel something maybe you've noticed it, but they're not saying it. But as far mm-hmm. as like, if they're, if someone's actually actively saying something to you like that, like they're expressing interest in you in that way, how long would you allow it to continue before you're like, you have to do, do something about it or do nothing or just continue, let it go and work, let them work through it as long as they want to? Well, it's a little bit different um, if you're talking about like normal clients in my practice versus uh, inmates. So I think um, working with uh, inmates, I'm a little bit less tolerant of that because they know the boundaries and the rules. And so um, if there's anything said or done that gives me the sense that they've developed that feeling, Um, and we've been doing therapy, I'll approach that client differently than I would an inmate who I haven't been doing therapy with. And that expresses that, like I can, you know, when you work in prison so long, you can hear things in people's voices. So I could hear the way someone just says good morning. And I already know like what's behind the good morning. It's not just a good morning. Is that a female thing or a therapist thing? I think it's a female thing (laughs) in prison. Yeah. I'm not the only one. So if I hear that thing in the good morning that tells me it's more then my tone, I'll say good morning back, but my tone and my face will be much different than it would be to someone that was just really saying good morning. And it's a way to let them know. In fact, I was getting gas the other day and um, I got a car wash and I was Are you talking about last night getting gassed. Or is that what you no, just said? no, no. I got gas in my car. I put <laughs> gas in my car last night or the night before. And I got a car wash and I'm drying off my car at one of the pumps and this dude walks up carrying a gas can and was looking at me and I just looked at him back and I must have had still the work face on because he just kept rolling. He didn't even ask. <laughs> so that's how like subtle and indoctrinated you get with this stuff. But um, I've never had a client um, like a, like a private practice client that uh, we haven't been able to work through those feelings or they've never crossed the line or, Um, for me, it's just a part of therapy that it it happens and it happens with male clients. It happens with female clients. It happens with everyone. It's not, you know, it's not limited to a certain group of people. All right. 
What are the most common things you see coming up with when the prisoners like come to therapy? What are the most common things you see? Are you allowed to talk about any of that? Like ideas? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you've ever worked with um, anyone in the foster care system, uh, I sort of envision most inmates as um, like children in men's bodies. Like they're, they've had a lot of trauma. If you took their ACEs score, you know, they, they're from impoverished neighborhoods, you know, mothers are depressed using drugs. Fathers are in prison. Um, you know, not the same educational background, not the same family support, maybe placed in foster care early. So, um, there's a lot of trauma. And then with that, there's usually some gang affiliation to get the, the social support that they need. Um, there's a lot of substance abuse. And so those three things kind of all, work together and they just keep evolving throughout their adulthood of like the trauma, the criminal element with the gangs and then the substance abuse. And then it just spirals into, you know, a life term usually uh, of murdering someone. So um, my approach is usually to uh, start building rapport with them and then to try to get them comfortable enough to go back and start discussing some of the trauma from early childhood. And then I usually bridge that with, their commitment offense. So they're usually connected. Their own trauma is usually connected somehow to what they did to someone else. And then um, if I work with them long enough, we'll get to the point where we're talking about their victims and developing empathy and remorse and insight into what they, what they actually did and the impact that it's had on their community. Does going to therapy for them, does that help them? I mean, you said lifers, but most, these people, most of these people are getting released, right? You said some of these people are getting released. Is that part of like criteria going to see you before they get released? No. Um, I think I mentioned lifers because that's the group that maybe is more open and more motivated to getting actual therapy in prison. Um, you know, they've usually been down longer. Uh, usually they were incarcerated much younger and now they're older. So they, you know, they're hitting late forties, early fifties. Uh, their testosterone's dropping. They're less violent. They're more insightful. Uh, they're developing some remorse for what they've done. They're usually getting sober or sober at that point. They're not using anymore in prison. Um, and so that's the group that um, when I do, you know, find an actual therapy client in prison, it's usually someone in that group. It's not usually someone that has a date. Um, and the motivation is much different. Imagine if, you know, you had to stop getting write-ups and you had to start programming to get out. The guys that have dates, they don't have to do any of that to get out. They're going to get out still. Right. So. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when you, uh, you said you talk about building rapport and I know we talk, we do like the same thing in like in, in law enforcement, building rapport with people. Do you have techniques that you've taught, uh, the correction officers, um, and, and the ability to build rapport with some of these inmates. So they have a better, I don't know, I guess working relationship, I would say, or an ability so that there's more, I don't know. It makes it easier for them while they're there. I'm talking about easier for the correctional officers, not necessarily the inmates. I think there's a lot of correctional staff that um, they know how to build rapport pretty well with inmates and they do have good rapport with them. Um, you know, the officers that are able to verbal judo a little bit more and express themselves more are usually the more efficient um, officers. They have less incidents, you know, less use of force incidents too. And I'm yeah. sure that applies across the board, whether you're, talking about a deputy on the streets or someone behind the wall. Right. But um, I feel like most of the time they have pretty good communication. 
uh, with inmates. And so I don't, I don't go in thinking I'm going to teach them anything. I just try to build rapport with all my coworkers um, and anyone that I'm treating. And so I feel like that's a way to just build a bridge. Um, so if the time ever comes that they, they need something themselves, they'll feel comfortable coming to me. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm like, I mean, what's up? What else you got? I mean, I don't, I didn't plan like a 30 question thing like you do. So I don't have all that. I'm still, I'm really want to see the man behind the mask. I know I'm not going to be able to, but you said you promised me a Batman mask and I haven't seen that. So, um, yeah, I haven't spent that money yet. I, I was, I was, I thought you were going to get one of those from like a gas station or something. Don't we have a gas mask? I have a gas mask. You probably should have worn it yesterday. Yes. Oh, I, that would have worked. Where is it? That would have been really comfortable it. sleeping in it. God. All right, so I'm going, let's go back. I mean, I mean, you didn't, I asked you earlier about like your, where you grew up and stuff. And there's some stuff that you obviously don't want to talk about, but you talked about, um, I think some loss early on, or you had to be kind of like the parent. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. I just, uh, my parents divorced when I was pretty young, uh, but it wasn't just a divorce. It was like, um, a legal battle that just pulled on for like 15 years, you know, and then there were a lot of remarriages and more divorces and then like half siblings. And so I feel like my parents were never able to get to the place where they could co-parent. Like there was just so much animosity and conflict um, that life was very chaotic for me and my siblings and a lot of shuffling between houses. And I just remember lots of court. There was always court going on. Parents always refiling wanting to move refiling. And so, uh, that was sort of the gist of most of my childhood was just, um, living in this constant state of like chaos and stress and conflict all the time. And so, so now I'm very avoidant of conflict. Like I hate conflict. It's the most stressful thing to me, um, to be in conflict with someone. And so, um, you know, they talk about the fight, flight, freeze, or there's a fourth, the fawn yeah. where you try to like appease and that was always me. I was always trying to like, I wasn't the mediator, or the peacemaker. I just didn't want everyone to be fighting all the time. So you'd um, say you, you would go into the fawn. Mm-hmm. How does that I affect think, relationships now? Well, it definitely impacted my, uh, my marriage when I was married earlier, because I ended up choosing someone that we ended up reenacting basically uh-huh. my childhood, you know, similar to you. And, Um, and then I was sort of forced into this similar, like I had to fawn to survive the marriage. Um, and it ended up becoming abusive and violent. And then uh, thankfully I was able to have good enough boundaries at that point to end it. Um, but there was definitely a lot of fawning, you know, in my mind, because I'd already had my son, I just made the mental choice. Like I am going to make this work and make it as peaceful as I can until my son is old enough where I feel comfortable because I knew once I made the decision to leave the marriage that it would become again, just like my parents, like a constant state of chaos. Right. And it has, it has been so still to uh, this day or yeah, still really. And I do my best just to distance myself from it, even with my son being older. Um, and luckily that relationship, you know, ended a long time ago, but there's still, there's still that, that conflict that chases me and I try my best just to put up boundaries and stop it. And it's very hard. How have Um, you taken your experience in that relationship to this one? 
Well, I think I chose poorly. But this but time? Was, no, the last time. Not this time. <laughs> that was my mistake the first time. I'm sure you were thinking that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I think you chose poorly in the drink you chose. Like Indiana Jones, you chose poorly. Um, no, I think I just, I chose, uh, you know, we unconsciously kind of choose our our partners and they almost are like reflections of our parents in some way and so you know I was 18 when I met my ex-husband and I was 21 when I got married and um you know now in this relationship uh, I feel like a completely different person than I was you know at 18 or 21 it's like a different life almost so yeah uh, you know luckily I think I've been working on myself long enough that um, I chose someone who emotionally was much healthier this time. How does she deal with conflict, Ellie? I don't want to sleep on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Just drink some stouts and then you have a reason to. Yeah, how do I how do I cope with conflict now? Oh, it's great. Everything's great. <laughs> oh, I, don't, on. I don't fawn anymore, that's for sure. You forget I watched you guys for like 20 minutes when the, the, <laughs> when the audio was working. <laughs> You tell us what did you observe? No, that's funny. I want to hear. I want to hear his perspective. If he'll, if he'll share it. Um, I mean, okay. How about this? Knowing that her past, because I, I think that was my actually. I was thinking this question earlier. How does it feel when she's told you about that past experience and past relationship? How does it make you feel? Um, I see my mother put up with a lot of shit. You know, when I was growing up. And uh, I don't understand why she did. And when I think about Ashley, I don't, I don't understand that either. Um, I guess women put up with a lot of things, uh, thinking it's going to be, it's the best, it's best for the kids. Yeah. And it, it, that's not always the case. You know? so. Do you, is there anything that you do? maybe subconsciously that you could think about that now I know subconsciously you wouldn't think about it, but anything that you do uh, knowing that she had, lot, had to deal with a lot or she put up with a lot of shit before. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm in the same wheelhouse as the person that she married. Mm-hmm. You know, he reminds me a lot of my father and uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm nothing like my father. You know, So, my, my upbringing and my kids' upbringing, it's just worlds apart. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think uh, part of growing up in an environment like that, uh, I also sometimes go into the freeze where I just kind of shut down yeah. and uh, pull away for a little bit. So I think as an adult, you know, when I realize I'm doing that and I'm kind of shutting down, I try to. I try to stop shutting down by verbalizing, you know, to him what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it and what triggered me. And usually once I get to that point, if I'm able to say, you know, when you did this, I was feeling this. And then he's like, I don't want you to feel that. And I'm sorry. And then we're usually able to talk through it. Um, I don't think I could have done that, you know, at age 20, but now I'm able to do it. Do you think that if you, even if you were able to do that age 20, that would you think that relationship still would have, I mean, it sounds like it was, you said violent. So, I mean, the volatility yeah, you know. of it, either it wouldn't have lasted anyway, 
Or would, would he, he have been recept- receptive to, anyway? Yeah, no, he wasn't willing to. Anytime you have, and this is like true in all like relationships, you have one partner that. I think the internet just kind of like cut out. Sorry. Overall. Can you hear me? What about now? I can hear you. Yeah, sorry, I just like glitched. Go ahead, say that again. I was just saying that um, uh, I think this is true in all relationships when you have a partner that wants to grow and change and is working on themselves and uh, is doing things actively and proactively to become a better person. And then you have another partner in the relationship who has absolutely no interest in doing that. Those two people are not going to stay married long. Right. Um, Like the trajectory is just like, you're just going to grow apart naturally. And so that was true in that case where he, he had no interest in, in changing or growing. Um, and then it became violent. And then at that point I had no interest in, in ever reconciling. Yeah. Do you, do you think your or how does your experiences in that relationship affected your practice and going into the prison and go and even outside with your private practice? Actually, it's interesting. I think the inverse happened where working in prison forced me to have better boundaries uh, in my relationships outside of prison. And so it also forced me to have better social skills. Um, You know, being in a prison oftentimes is like being in a small town and, you know, everyone walks by you normally. This isn't everywhere, but most places, you know, you make eye contact, you say good morning, even if you don't know the person. Right you greet them. You know, I got a lot of what's up doc on the way into my office at the prison. Um, no one knows, you know, maybe they don't know my name, but they know who I am and they'll still greet me. Um, so I started realizing, you know, from being in prison that one, I didn't have good boundaries outside of prison because I was being forced to, for safety reasons, have good boundaries at work. And then, outside of work, I realized I wasn't doing the same thing. And so as my boundaries started getting better outside of work and my social skills started getting better. And as I became more confident as a person, I started realizing like, this isn't working outside of prison. And I started making attempts to get on the same page with him and, you know, work on the relationship and then things sort of blew up from there. So I'm sure he blames me working in prison for the end of our relationship, but I think it was actually healthy that that happened. It helped, helped you become more healthy as far as the way you handle relationships mm-hmm. and conflict, right? Yeah. And not tolerating disrespect. Has there been a time where you in prison, cause you talk about boundaries were about like you felt you were actually scared based on what was going on. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Plenty of times. Anything specific that comes to mind or no? Yeah, there was one time uh, I was uh, in my office with an inmate and um, they don't always design prisons, especially the older ones, with safety in mind. And so it was a very small office, uh, much smaller than this room. And so I'm almost sitting like touching knees basically with this inmate. Like that's how small it was. And um and they became very agitated with me because I had requested a drug, a drug screen because they were acting differently, um, which was something a lot of clinicians and therapists don't do, but I think I'm a little more correctionally minded. So I did it. And so they found out it was me that had requested it. And so their body language and sessions started changing, like the tenseness, the shoulders, hands went into fists. 
you know, we're sitting very close proximity and, uh, and they became aware, I think of, that they were escalating. And so, um, uh, they stood up and, uh, my head could have easily gone through the wall, uh, you know, with their arm, <laughs> like they, they basically had to reach past my head to get to the door and leave. So luckily he stood up and he left and walked out, um, to avoid it escalating more. And, um, one of the officers in the hallway saw the way that he was leaving and shouted his name and told him to come back. And, um, I didn't tell him to come back. I just told him to stop because I think he was leaving in a hurry or he was running out of the building or something. And instead of stopping and going against the wall, like the officer said, and they started like running towards me and the officer. And so at that point, you know, force was used and, um, we all got pepper sprayed basically. <laughs> and that was the end of that day. And then I had to deal with that inmate later, uh, in ADSEG when I started working in ADSEG again. And it was just, it was difficult. There were days that the inmate wanted to apologize and would just constantly be yelling my name out of the cell door in the housing unit. And I'm just trying to work and do other stuff. And then there's other days he would get mad that I wasn't responding to him. And then he'd start calling me names and disrespecting me again. So it was just the cycle of like, you know, never ending conflict sometimes, but, um, you never saw that, that inmate again, besides that. I mean, as far as like in a session, did you ever see him again? No. no. And once that happens, uh, yeah, we're done. We're yeah, there's not, it. there's not another session. No. Are there other therapists on staff? Mm-hmm. So they would potentially go to somewhere else if that's something sure. that they want. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was wondering if there's like protocols that change, if you would mm-hmm. have to, because your office was so small, would you change protocols and, Recognize that this is not really the safest space to do this in. It's not right. This is not a good place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I can. I mean, I guess you're heightened awareness, but I mean, in general, like as a correctional officer, or someone works in a prison, you're already at that heightened awareness that anything can happen any time. Um, mm-hmm. But then you're kind of going as like I want to say a softer, but you're a softer approach to like get them to speak to you, and then being that close proximity. I don't know. I think that puts you in a very precarious situation a lot of times. Yeah. Um, it's the potential I think is, is always there. Um, there's other settings that I think are actually a little bit more dangerous. I think, uh, County jail with the revolving intake and people being, you know, intoxicated or high, that's pretty a volatile space too. Um, the state hospitals are very dangerous and there's no correctional staff there. So the people that are doing the hands-on are, the doctors and the nurses. Um, so, and I've worked in those settings too, but I think in prison, the difference is uh, it may not happen as often that, that you go hands-on, but when you, when it does happen, it's usually really bad. It's not just like a minor assault. It's usually a more major assault. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those who are seeking, I guess seeking therapy or seeking someone to talk to outside, not necessarily in prison, but like someone that might find you. I mean, I know I found you on uh, psychology today and I had a bunch of like links for what insurance you can use, but what's the best way to reach you if they're going to want to like actually look for a therapist? I think psychologytoday.com is a great resource for anybody, um, not just for me. So uh, that website, I like it because you can filter, there's like a search bar and you can put in what city you're, you know, you want to look for a therapist in, and then you can tap the insurance. There's an insurance tab at the top and you can select your insurance so that 
you get a filtered list of who's in your city that takes your insurance. And that's a quicker way than just, um, you know, calling your insurance and asking for a list of providers. Usually it's a pretty big list. So, um, uh, that's the best way to reach me. There's a, an email and a phone number link on psychology today. Um, I'm pretty full. Am I allowed allowed to put that out? Yeah, that's fine. It's on my, uh, the link in my bio too. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was curious on the, um, it says you do telehealth on here. Yeah, I actually am doing a hundred percent telehealth right now. I don't have an office, so this is my home office that we're in right now. Did you have, you had an office before, right? Mm -hmm. Say that again. It works just as well, I mean, yeah. which is surprising to me that doing telehealth is just as effective. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy this better than the other one or what do, what do you prefer? I prefer in person. Um, I feel like there's an element to uh, being face-to-face that's different than telehealth. Um, there are some people that I see by telehealth um, that I've been seeing that you know, maybe they live in a rural location as a first responder and there's no way they could ever get to my office. So in that instance, telehealth works well because we're able to connect. But um, yeah, if if I'm able to do in person, that's always preferable. Does Ali join your sessions? No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's like a show, you know, maybe you're in there. I don't talk to him about it. We don't. Yeah, it's totally separate. We got a lot of confidentiality laws and stuff. So yeah, I was kidding. Yeah, is it true that you, in order to work with you, you have to live in California? That's true. All right. So no one, if you're out of state, you can't. You'd have to go and like filter that, like on the website as far as your state. Yeah. At the time of the session, like there are some people that live on that like Reno, Nevada, California, Tahoe line, and so I tell them like you have to be in California for our sessions. You don't have to live in California, but when we meet for sessions, you have to be in California. And that's, it's a silly, it's silly, but that's the law. It sounds silly, especially now with like telehealth. It makes, you could, you should be able to go, go anywhere. How would you ever know yeah. if I said, I want to yeah. do a session with you? How would you ever know that I'm not in California? Right. I As wouldn't. I told you. Yeah. That's interesting. There's this new thing they're doing called um, psych pact where some states have entered agreements with other states giving therapists permission because there's so little therapists in those states. So states like, um, like Texas and New Mexico and I think Utah, California of course didn't do it, but they all created this agreement where they're allowing therapists to see clients in those states, um, which was helpful during COVID, but uh, California didn't join. So. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So speaking of COVID, how has therapy changed since the, I guess that initial onset, if it has changed at all? Yeah, I think the main impact has been uh, the demand on therapists that um, everyone's been really struggling through COVID. And so people started seeking out therapists early on during the pandemic um, and it's, it's really created a supply and demand issue. Um, where when people do now want to start therapy, they're finding that it's very hard to find any therapist that doesn't have a wait list. Really? And so if you're in a crisis now and you're seeking therapy, you're really screwed because like, even for me, um, really I'm not taking any new clients right now and I do have a wait list. And I tell people that are on the wait list, you know, I'm hoping I can get to you in a month or two then we can start then, but I can't even promise that. So, um, 
it's, it's difficult. You feel bad. And, you know, I try to offer resources when I can, like, if I can't take you, you know, here's a list and go to psychology today, pull up this list and try to find someone. But I just encourage people to keep calling, you know, it's going to take some legwork to uh, find a therapist that has an opening and a therapist that is the right fit for you. But, you know, um, it's, it's not good to wait till you're in a crisis. And that's part of what we do on the podcast too. It's like, once you get to that crisis state, there's not a lot of good options left. Yeah. Either you're going to be hospitalized at that point, or you're going to do something you're going to regret. Um, and so it's really important that as you start approaching a period where you're not doing well to start seeking help early, um, because right now it's very, very hard to find a therapist. I know we talked about it in your podcast a little bit, but, um, I mean, I have the belief that you sh- people should go for like regular check-ins. You know, we do like health, like like you get your medical check. You should probably do like a mental check as well every once in a while. Um, are there are there um, therapists who would like specifically offer that kind of stuff, just like check-ins, or do, is it everyone that wants to do like kind of like a full package thing? I have clients that um, are like just standby clients, and so they'll let me know when they need a session. So. Maybe I used to see them regularly and now I maybe hear from them once a quarter or once every six months. And I'm always happy to see them. You know, I'll make time for them since they were a former client. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if clients wants to want to come in once a month or once a quarter, I'm fine with that too. Yeah, I think that's important. And one, one thing that I think it was the biggest struggle, at least for me, finding a therapist is that you when you find, when you finally, let's say we had our first session, right? We like, let's say the podcast would be similar to like the first session. If you do all of that work and then you don't click, you realize after maybe session two or three, like you're not clicking with this therapist, you have to do it all over again. And like that emotional dump. And like, honestly, I kind of got worn out, like saying, like talking about like your, the the past, like doing that thing. I Mm -hmm. like almost like, where's you? Like, I don't even, I don't want to do this again. Like I already did it. Like I don't want to go look for another therapist. Looking back though on that experience, do you think after the first session you had that feeling like maybe this isn't a good fit and you just waited a few more sessions to kind of be for sure? As far as the, the first therapist, mm-hmm. this is not your podcast. I'm still asking you questions. Well, I'm kidding. I wanna- <laughs> no, I know. I think I actually, I actually, uh, I actually connected with the therapist the first one. I thought, Oh, this is a good, mm-hmm. this is this guy, it was a guy. I, he's oh, he's like sh- straight shooter. And then I think it's a couple in. I'm like, yeah, I'm not getting anything out of this. Mm. Like nothing was, nothing felt right. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it was. Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think I knew right away. But maybe there are people yeah. that do know and then mm-hmm. feel like, oh, well, I already went. So that's mm-hmm. one of those things. But um, I mean, have you seen those people where they've kind of gone to you a few times and you're like, they're like. Yeah, I think I'm going to move on. Or they just don't call you back or whatever. You're like, realize, or maybe you realize right away, like, this is probably not a good fit. Or can you tell them yeah. no? Unless it's a bad fit in terms of, um, like, the treatment problem, for me, uh, you know, I'll push myself to see those clients, even if I feel like we're not a totally good fit, even on my end, because I feel like, as a therapist, I should be able to see everyone. Um, and so unless I unless they have a problem that's not my specialty or – if I feel like I'm not the most well-trained person in this area, like if they come in for like, let's say an eating disorder and I'm not a specialist in eating disorders and that's something you'd want to go see a specialist for that client. I'll tell them like, you know, I don't think I'm the best person for you. 
and I want you to see the best person. Um, but uh, if it's someone that I feel like our personalities just don't click, I'll, I'll push myself um, to see them. But on their end, I've had clients after one session that just told me like, Hey, thank you for your time. And, you know, I, I don't think we're the best fit for each other. And, and I say, thank you very much. I appreciate you telling me. Yeah. And, you know, I wish you well. And then I have other clients that, you know, they act like we're online dating and they just ghost me and not show up for an appointment. And, and that's pretty immature. You know, I think as an adult, you should be able to just say, yeah, you know, thank you, but I'm going to look for someone else. And I'm totally fine with that. I thought, I thought that's what you were doing today when you said your power went out. <laughs> Ghosting you? Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, what, what's, uh, I'm one curious about, like, okay, so therapy, when people are going to therapy, they're, mo- they're dumping all this emotional stuff onto you. But as a therapist, what are you doing now to take care of yourself after the therapy? Because I, I know it's in a drain on, a, on the person who's on the other side of it. So what are you doing to take care of yourself? Yeah, for me, it's kind of about um, how many session hours I'm putting in and what time of the day and what's too much for me. Um, so I, most of my balance is just trying to figure out my schedule in terms of what works well for me um, and not overloading myself uh, with too many sessions in one day or um, things like that. But um, I've always been active you know, doing different exercises. It's been hard with my back injury to really do what I used to do. But um, actually, I've been surprised. I've been doing um, Pilates for like the last two or three years. Oh, yeah. Because that was one of the few things I, my back could tolerate doing. Um, and I got strong enough, like my core and my back got strong enough again that I actually started uh, weightlifting a few months ago again. And I haven't done any like circuit any weightlifting in like six, seven years. And it felt so good. So, um, I'm back to doing that. Um, we swim, we go to the jacuzzi a lot. Um, what else do we like to do? Drink peanut butter or stouts. Besides smell your farts. <laughs> the podcast is also an outlet for us. It's fun. Yeah. It's yeah. fun to do it. I, I enjoy, that. I enjoy doing something. It's kind of like a creative outlet in a way. Um, it's really hard, you know, there's this balance with, um, the social media policies that all the departments have. And, uh, it's tricky. It's tricky doing stuff like this when you're still employed. There's always that fine line you walk of like, you feel like you can't even identify yourself as an employee in a certain department. Yeah. And even though you know, you're not doing anything that's disparaging or bringing, you know, you're not doing anything that's against the rules. I'm not, you know, saying any racial slurs. I'm not putting any groups down. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm not making the department look bad, but there's still this line where you're afraid to say certain things. So that's the part of this, the podcast part that I don't care for is like this line you walk where, you know, everyone's nervous because you have a podcast, but the podcast, we're really trying to, educate our coworkers. We're trying to help them and we're trying to save their lives basically and offer them an outlet and, and do something that isn't being done for them Um, and doing it pro bono. Actually we sat down the other day and we were calculating our, what our hourly rates are like his hourly rate with the job. And then 
I used the low end of my rate. Okay. I have like a range of rates okay. and I used the very low end and we calculated how many hours it takes to produce one episode for him and for me at our different rates. Try and guess how much in time it costs for us to produce one episode. For one episode? How much money? Um, I'm trying to think of how many hours it takes me, but I also do way less editing and preparation than you guys <laughs> do. So, so I have to like add, add a few hours. Um, let's say, I don't know. I'm going to say $2,000. Yeah. $2,300 per episode. Yeah. Just based on the amount of hours it takes. And that doesn't include our equipment that we bought or anything like that. So, um, yeah. yeah so the part that kind of rubs me wrong is like, uh, no matter how much, like, um, if, you know, if we have a sponsor or not, like we're in the red and we're always going to be in the red and we're never going to be in the green. And we're doing this as a pro bono gesture to tell our coworkers that we care about them. So I think that's important. I mean, that's, I mean, same here. I don't, mm-hmm. this is all out of my, you know, out of pocket in my time. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, like I said, it's, a, but I do agree. You get something out of it, like getting to know people better and just the whole idea of like, Hey, it's okay to like, dive in and you're going to like, it's, and we should be, we should be actually asking people what's really going on or like how they are and, and learn more. Like I would never know that about you, like your past. And if we were working together every day, I could easily do something or say something that could trigger something in you and never know. But now mm-hmm. I know about, you know, your relationship history. And maybe I, instead of, you know, maybe I can, I think for a second before I do or say something that may make you feel a certain way but I would sure. never, I never do that if I didn't know you, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's that's why that's the reason why I started this exact, like, just to get to know people better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the more you do for your department, I think the better. And I'm, it's unfortunate that all of these departments have that social media policy that makes it. I'm not saying like certain things shouldn't be said or done. Obviously, people are stupid on social media, but as far as normal, respectful, and right. things that can help people, I think is important to get out there. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, is, a few idiots ruined it for us all. Yeah, they continue to though. <laughs> Was there anything, any last words, anything that you would do? How about for anybody right now, either in law, in or outside law enforcement, if they were looking at wanting to become a therapist or get into that world? I know you've talked to people who have done that, who have transitioned. Um, is there something specific you would offer advice you'd offer at this point in their careers? Because I know a lot of people are trying to transition in in their different lives. Um, well, I think there's different standards for each profession. Um, you know, law enforcement has like the post standards and stuff like that. And my field, um, uh, I really feel like to be well-trained, uh, a master's degree is not enough. Of, it's not enough training. Um, I think about where I was after two years of grad school, uh, like at, at a master's level. And I, I was not ready to treat clients, um, so I feel like having a doctorate and becoming a psychologist as opposed to like a master's level therapist is better. Um, when you find a graduate school, it's important that they're APA accredited, the American Psychological Association. Um, the school needs to be accredited. Your training sites need to be accredited. Um, there's a lot of uh, what we call diploma mills out there now, and most of them are online schools. I went to what we call a brick and mortar school. It was a real school. It actually was made of bricks <laughs> and um, 
in-person learning is the most efficient. And so if someone wanted to go down that path, I would say find a brick and mortar school, a school where you're actually going to go onto a campus as inconvenient as that is, that's the best learning. Uh, It needs to be APA accredited and um, it needs to be a doctorate program. All right. And anyone that's looking to get therapy, any, you said psychology today, anything else you could offer them? There's a couple of ways. Um, Psychology today is just um, one way, but another way is uh, to call their insurance and the insurance companies are happy to email you a list of providers um, based on your specifications. So if you're looking for a certain city or a certain gender um, or a certain type of specialty, usually they're able to filter those results too, and they'll send you a list. Um, I'm always happy to try to help find someone for you, you know, if you don't know who to go to. Um, there's a few things that are considered specialties. So like couples therapy is a specialty. Um, and if you need to go to a couples therapist, it's important that they're trained either in EFT, emotionally focused therapy or Gottman, the Gottman model. And so when you go to a a couples therapist, you want to ask them, are you Gottman trained or are you EFT trained? Um, and that'll tell you if they're a specialist or not in that area. Um, all right. I wish I knew that. Yeah. Eating disorders is a specialty. Um, trying to think what else, if you have like, uh, OCD or, um, like real severe anxiety, like panic attacks, usually that's considered a specialty. Those are things I'm not a specialist in. Um, yeah. So certain things like that, that the general public doesn't know to ask for like what type of training. So for first responders, I would say uh, the best type of therapist to go to is someone that's culturally competent that knows about first responders. But if you can't find that, um, the next best thing is a therapist that does EMDR, the eye movement, and that's specific for trauma, critical incidents and for anxiety. And it works really well. Cool. And one last thing I didn't ask you before is uh, how did you come up with the staff assistant, the name? Is that what you're called at work? I can't claim credit for that name. I came up with it. You have to explain though. Yeah, you have to explain it. What it means. Um, geez. <laughs> it's very department specific. So. Oh, okay. It's yeah. actually a term that uh, implies that an inmate needs help with something. And so it's a staff that's identified specifically to help an inmate with something. Um, and so it's a play on words because as staff, we don't have that person to help us, to help us with stuff. So, so you're the staff assistant. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, if you want to look at, uh, for a great podcast besides this one, obviously go take a look at, look for the staff assistant podcast. Um, it's on, uh, every platform you can think of. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And, uh, follow her at, at the staff assistant on Instagram and do you have your, what's your email if they want to ask you? Like, are they allowed to email you, or you just want to DM? Yeah, we have a email for the podcast. It's the staff assistant podcast at gmail.com. But there's a link also um, in my bio to my Psychology Today page, and there's a way you can email through that link. Okay, cool. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming on. Um, I know it's like you're paying me back for uh, me coming on yours, but uh, I really enjoy like talking to you both of you guys. Maybe one day I'll be in person. One day with a mask. Sure. Or with a mask, whatever. <laughs> All right, I'm going to send this. Are you going to edit my whole podcast for me? 
Just kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Ollie will do the work. I'm going to dive into that $2,300 budget. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thanks again. You can find this at, at let's grab a cup. Um, or uh, sturgeonwellness.com and then find me at uh, Instagram at AP underscore sturgeon or let's grab a cup on Instagram and then also uh, check out the staff assi- the staff assistant on Instagram as well. I'm just going to throw this uh, outro music. Thanks again, guys, for coming on. Thanks, Adam. Bye, Ali. Bye. <laughs> I'm in a few words. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>